that's what kind of started, not kind of, did start um, my my stint as a sex worker. It also started a spiral of shame. You know, just exchange sex for drugs or sex for money for drugs. And what I was engaging with, when I look back at it, it was so traumatic and I felt so ashamed that I would need to use more and etc. etc. So, So that was kind of the plateau of the rock bottom. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 131. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last six years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. And many of those people found Tribe Sober by doing one of our challenges. Our alcohol-free challenges are usually a month or 66 days But in August, we did our very first five-day sober sprint, and it worked so well that people are messaging me saying that they've been sober ever since. But they're coming to the next one just to be a cheerleader. How awesome is that? So our next sober sprint is from October the 17th to the 21st. Our sober sprints are absolutely free, and they're a bit like a sobriety boot camp. The action all takes place in a Facebook group where we offer daily tasks and training sessions as well as all-day support from the Tribe Sober team. We've already got 600 people in the group, so the community support is fantastic. So come and join us in the Facebook Sober Sprinters group. You can either find the group and ask to join, or you can go to tribesober.com and hit the Sober Sprint button. And it's absolutely free, so why not do that right now? So let's get to this week's podcast guest. My guest this week is Desiree Ann Martin. Her addiction to drugs and alcohol kept her at rock bottom for two years, resorting to sex work to fund her heroin habit. But despite this, she managed to turn her life around and these days she's a happily married mother of two girls as well as a qualified addiction counsellor. At the age of 41, she published her first book, a memoir called We Don't Talk About It Ever. It's an unforgettable book, and by sharing her experience, strength and hope, Desiree Ann has given many others a platform to speak out and to begin the road to recovery. She's given people a message of hope. I began by asking her to introduce herself. Hi, Janet. 
Thank you so much for this opportunity to be a guest on your podcast on Tribe Sober. My name is Desiree Martin and I live in Weinberg in Cape Town. I am a registered counsellor and I work in the mental health space, addiction and trauma spaces with adults and adolescents in private practice. My side hustle is writing. I've published two books and I've been published in various anthologies um, subsequently. I am a prize-winning author, also won um, an award in 2020 for my writing. So I always say that therapy is my day job and writing's my superpower, mainly also because I do it at night or the early hours of the morning. I have an amazing family. I have an adoring husband. I have a 14, nearly 15, she'll be 15 next week, 15-year-old daughter. And I don't know what we were thinking, but my husband and I decided to have a child at 40. I was 40, so I also have, for my sins, a six-year-old daughter. And I volunteer as an industry mentor for the Alan Gray Orbis Foundation and a public speaker. I do talks at schools and corporates uh, around my journey, but also many around adversity and resilience. So let's dive into your story, Desiree. I think it all began with slimming pills. Take us back to the slimming pills. Yes, my addiction started with slimming tablets, thins, (laughs) they were called. Yes, Thins. thins. I was a very, very insecure adolescent. I was five foot nothing, hoping for a miracle. I still am five foot nothing, but not hoping for a miracle. I think I've, I've reached my peak. I had developed body dysmorphia from the age of about 11 already um, because I was actually quite athletic. But, you know, my perception of myself was that I was obese and I was, I had raging eczema and I had braces and I had unruly hair. And I thought I was grossly unattractive. And when I was in grade 11, I was asked to leave, which is a a synonym for got expelled from private school. But you never get expelled from there. You always get asked to leave and you can't say no. (laughs) So in grade 12, I found myself in a co-ed private college. I thought... It was a good way to get male attention, to find someone, to get validation. And the easiest place that my mind settled on was to lose weight. And so I started uh, taking thins in, I think, the beginning of the year in, in grade 12. And it escalated so quickly. I was, I started, I mean, with three in my first attempt and it ended up that I was taking up to 10 of those tablets a day. That continued well into the next year. I obviously had the desired outcome. I was losing tons of weight. I had no appetite. I had, I was losing weight. I, I I found myself, I found myself attractive. I was like, Hey, you're pretty hot. Still raging with insecurity though. But what I failed to recognize that was that I was high all the time. (laughs) I was becoming addicted to a very powerful stimulant. I thought I was just very energetic. So that's how my my addiction started. And I then found that bulimia supported my weight loss endeavors. 
I started developing an, an eating disorder. When I got to the UK the following year, I was absolutely devastated that you could not get dye tablets or slimming tablets over the counter. You, it had to be prescribed. Yeah. Can I, can yeah. I just ask you about things? Mm. Uh, did they have affetamines? Yeah, they them? had uh, neuropseudoephedrine or norepinephrine right. so they had amphetamines lots of amazing you can just buy and them yeah yeah they were on the you know those little rot- rotating those sort of tip rotating racks and you could just pick them up and buy them with your pocket money <laughs> as i did or um when it came to it i did shoplift them because i was using 10 a day so uh, you know i had to i couldn't actually afford to keep buying them so Sure. So what what age were you when you moved to the UK and, and why did you move? So I turned 19 two days after I arrived in the UK. Quite frankly, it was true because I was running away from home. I had matriculated with very good grades and I was accepted into UCT drama department. And when it came to it, because I had this insane fear of failure and I was fraught with all these insecurities I actually turned down my place at UCT because I thought I'm gonna tank this and also by that time I'd also started drinking it seemed like a much better pastime than studying and so I decided to rather get a job um, in the hospitality industry which supported that as well and so I left for the UK, yeah, in October, the year after I matriculated. They say that everywhere you go, there you are. But in my mind, I just needed to get the hell away from what I thought was circumstances, which was my family and pressure. But I was trying to get away from myself, but it didn't quite work. So you landed up where, in London? In London, um, initially in London. And then I was uh, I got an all-pairing job in West Sussex. But then eventually I moved to Manchester because there was a boy there, which is a, a theme that runs through my story of the dysfunction that played out in the relationships I found myself in and the particular people I was attracted to or the particular people that I repelled because they were too nice or they were too loving and I wasn't worthy of it. So that is a theme of codependent and toxic relationships in my story. So I ended up spending the next couple of years, actually, I overstayed my my visa by a year or two. Yeah, I lived in in Manchester. I went to the Hacienda, which was, I mean, you know, it was like world famous. And that's where actually, I I think I dropped MDMA for the first time was at the Hacienda. My boyfriend at the time was a student and I was kind of a pseudo student and immersed in in that, that culture. And it was a heavy drinking culture. Because I couldn't get the slimming tablets, I was kind of trying to find stimulants that would have the same effect. So I was always on the lookout for crystal meth or, yeah. you know, anything. You wanted <clears throat> to 
to get back to that high of the yeah, thing. and also, and I was like, <laughs> I was the the rebound weight gain was insane, and also I was so cold and dark. <laughs> I truly believe that I had like some kind of seasonal affective disorder because I got so depressed from not seeing the sun, and then I found hobnobs, and myself and Winter got well acquainted. And because I wasn't on the, the slimming tablets any, anymore, I was still purging, but I was gaining weight and I was getting depressed. Yeah. Oh, I can just picture you in a, <laughs> a little house in Manchester with the rain pouring with down, my as it does there, from my memory, with your hobnob. <laughs> my hobnob, my cup of tea, yeah. So how, how many years in the UK? Um, just under four years in total. Yes, because I came back... When I was 22, yes, so just uh, just under four years. Yeah. Right, okay. and it all got rather hectic when you came back to SA. Oh, it was messy here, but messy in such a gleeful way because uh, I came back and it was the rave culture had exploded in South Africa and everyone, I mean like everyone that I knew, <laughs> neighbours from the past, old school friends, family members, Everybody was using drugs, which normalized it for me because I was like, well, everyone's getting high, you know, so like, and everyone's getting wasted every weekend. So it was the perfect subculture to slut into to support my ever growing addiction. So I cast my net a bit further. And so it was MDMA and ecstasy and LSD and. Uh, crystal meth. My my mantra was like, yes, please. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. And had you reconnected with your family? Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, I was yeah. living with my parents for a while. They were divorced, so I was living with my mom and for a while. But then I I moved out shortly after because I just. Couldn't I <laughs> couldn't be back there and yeah. and also parents inconvenience one's drug addiction, so I had to get that factor out of the way. I did move out and I moved to various places over the next little while. Very nomadic. I was a known promise breaker um, because I'd vowed I'd never drink, but then when I did drink, it felt like coming home. But I did vow that I would never use crack cocaine or heroin that didn't last very long in fact i think it was it was one of my birthdays so so i met a boy yeah it's a bit bittersweet telling the story you recognize the the character in my book he was amazing and i was very much in love with him and he was a heroin addict and it's a bit bittersweet i found out this morning that he passed away and not addiction-related at all. So it was a bit emotional morning for me. But I met him, <laughs> and he was amazing, and he was talented, and he was funny, and he was hot, and he was a DJ. A DJ in the subculture, they were like demigods, you know? So I was like, yeah, you. I was reflecting this morning that I was like, I was operating on almost stalker level, just just under stalker level. I was pursuing this man really hard. <laughs> we got into a relationship and he, so he asked me to be his girlfriend. I said, yes, please, because that's, that's 
pretty much what I said to everything. Then he said that he was a heroin addict. The only frame of reference that I had was Train Spotting, the movie. In that moment, I was like, I've seen Train Spotting. I've got this. So I was like, yeah, no problem, you know, that, that's fine. I got the boy. He just happens to come with a very serious addiction. That is kind of where my codependence kicked in, is that I truly believe that my love could change him. I truly believe that I had enough love within to change another human being. My parents' marriage, the relationship, when I, when I viewed it, my takeaway from, from their marriage, which was by no means ideal, was that you stay no matter what. You just keep loving harder and harder. And that had somehow kind of entrenched itself in my neural pathways. And that was what I believed needed to happen. So I stayed no matter what. I was working in public relations and uh, events management at the time. And so all of my resources were going towards funding his addiction. And I had my own addictions on the side I was still you know using cocaine a lot it didn't take very long it was a few months when I I felt so defeated I remember the moments of like just thinking I can't fight this this is this is bigger than me I had a choice of of losing him which was actually not a choice because that's not how I was hardwired. You know, it wasn't a choice to leave him. I had to stay no matter what. And so it got to the point of, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And so, so I did. I tried heroin for the first time. I remember vomiting buckets, but I persevered because when I used heroin for the first time, it was like, the greatest emotional anesthetic I had ever experienced. All the the pain of my childhood, of past traumas, all the pain, everything, everything just went away. Everything just went quiet. Everything just felt just safe and the noise went away. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I know, this, this is good. This feeling of nothing is the feeling that I want. But I also remember a couple of weeks later waking up and realizing that I was addicted. Waking up with withdrawal for the first time and going, oh, fuck. It seems to take weeks to yeah, get of re completely addicted use. to yeah, heroin. It took, it took a couple yeah, of weeks yeah. of, of... So quick. It's very quick. And I remember waking up and having this this pain that was both inside and outside of my legs and like I was sweating and I I felt ill. Oh, fuck. I'm addicted. So it didn't take long at all. Then everything spiraled. Absolutely everything spiraled. I ended up living a double life and my many years at theatre school gave me the ability to pretend to be a perfectly high-functioning professional in the workplace. During the day I was able to do that and at night I was like, you know, 
committing credit card fraud and all sorts of other crimes. I think the statute of limitations has passed now, so so I can speak about that. So I had to sustain that, and he and I were still together through throughout that, and kind of spoon feeding each other heroin and we smuggled drugs overseas. Yeah, we just got into this entire other altered, like separate but parallel universe. It fed into my denial because obviously if I could pull that off, I didn't have a problem, right? You know, if I could show up at work and be high functioning, I didn't have a problem. Um, Yeah, we we talk a lot about functioning alcoholics, but not so much about functioning heroin addicts, but it seems to exist. It definitely did. It got to the point where where I had to use just to actually physically function as opposed Mm. to actually be productive, then I, then I had to use more in order to do that. So it was just about like keeping the withdrawal at bay every day, every day, you know, every couple of hours. So it's a full-time job. I was exhausted. <laughs> yeah. So we, we got separated, the boy person and I, through a series of events. And I got sent to a rehab in the middle of nowhere and... There were goats there. I remember. Was that was that your mum that hauled you out of this uh, this lifestyle no, and no, that, put you in the you rehab? What, I think that was the, the first time when I got separated from the boy person. I ran out of ideas. I you know I tried to to figure out what to do, and I actually phoned my dad, and he then deposited me in the middle of. I don't know where this place is, but it had goats. That's what I remember, and I I don't like goats. And it had no program and it had no support, and it was just basically like this cold cement drying out tank, far away from anywhere, with no real rehabilitation and a lot of shaming. And I I fraternized, <laughs> as one does, got kicked out of there even overachieved in in terms of getting kicked out of a low-grade rehab. And then I was on my own, and I think that was the last year of my using. That's when I was tired. I was bone-tired, and the the only person that was still around was my mom. And I was living with her. Crikey, I put that woman through a million versions of hell. Every day she was just trying to ensure that I wouldn't go out and die. I bet as the mum of a teenager now, you, you understand what she went <laughs> I through, do. don't you? We actually you? had a conversation <laughs> about it the other day. My mum was like, so now you understand. I was like, yeah, I got it. Managed to get out of her flat, uh, even though she locked me in. I managed to get out, whether it was through climbing out of three-story windows or, or scur- like scurrying through little, um, those little hatches for uh, garbage in those old blocks of flats, I managed to get out, and I was still stealing and pawning my grandmother's china and all sorts of things, and then I. I kind of ran out of resources, and the the only thing that I had left to bargain with was my vagina. That's what kind of started, not kind of, did start um, my my stint as a sex worker. It also started a spiral of shame, you know, just exchange 
sex for drugs or sex for money for drugs and what I was engaging with when I look back at it was so traumatic and I felt so ashamed that I would need to use more and etc etc so so that was kind of the plateau of the rock bottom (laughs) I think by the end when my mom offered to send me to rehab I was just like yeah I owe some people some money I'd really like to learn how to use successfully maybe you know how to to just use heroin on Friday evenings (laughs) and and I really just do need a break and so I I agreed to that that was a completely different experience I was reluctant to go but I'd been going to meetings for for over a year completely high claiming clean clean time that I didn't have just so I could get a round of applause or a hug. There was a, a man that was helping me. He was dragging my ass to meetings, actually. He asked me one day, you know, do you want to get sober? Do you want to get clean? And I was, I said, yes, I do. I just don't know how. I don't know how to stop. I have these glimmers where I realize that I'm killing myself, that like doctors are telling me my my organs are failing, my hair is falling out, I weigh like 40 kilograms, I am like have track marks and abscesses and my teeth are crumbling. Yes, I want to stop, but I just don't freaking know how. And when I got to the rehab, the second rehab, it was actually through through telling my story, through speaking my truth. You know, I I came in with so much shame. I was this this walking zombie girl. It's not that I trusted anyone or trusted the process. It's just that I was so tired of secrets and lies and shame rotting me from the inside out. I decided, screw it. Like, I'm going to just start telling people what's been going on. I heard you say that on another interview on that BBC one, I think. I thought it was so powerful. You said something like, once we've got the courage to tell our stories, the universe will come to us. That's so beautiful. And I I so agree. Because it's like... I've seen it so many times. People just telling their stories and you can see them change, you know, and there's such a relief, isn't it? You can see the weight just falling off their shoulders. It's like, this is who I am. You know, it's the power of vulnerability, isn't it? And authenticity. And it's just like... And not expecting, and well, you know, fearing judgment and fearing reprisal and all of that kind of thing. But when you don't get that, when you get the opposite of that, when you get people saying, oh, no, I did that too, or I felt that way, or I've been through that, and it breaks down all that that illusion that like that you've been navigating all of this by yourself that you're the only person in the entire universe who's having this experience and suddenly there is connectedness this connection which I also believe is the antithesis of of addiction and then I didn't stop and I couldn't shut up and and I, I got it you know I they were like okay you need to do this in order to to stay sober and I was like I wasn't like, yes, please, enthusiastically, because I was like, I was like, yeah, okay, okay. And then I had an experience where I had to to make a choice because I had a traumatic experience. I remember thinking, 
Okay, Desran. So your options are this. You get sober. You stop using and, you know, find recovery. Or you die. And it's not going to be a quick death. It's going to be slow. It's going to be painful. It's going to be so creative in the way that it destroys you. These are your options. Choose now. And I was like, I'm going to try the sober way. Sounds like you, you chose life. <laughs> I did. I, I didn't think I was. I was just not choosing more pain. You know, I was, mm. I just, I couldn't anymore. I, I think I was so saturated with pain at that point. I was just like, there's no more room. <laughs> I can't. But if I'd continued using, it would have been inevitable. The pain would have been inevitable, you know, and the suffering as well. So was that rehab the, the turning point, the one your mum sent you to? Yes, it was. I, I think it was. It was the first place where I learned how to speak my truth. My childhood was rooted in secrets and lies. It was the first place where I could shed some of the shame. It was the first place where yeah. I opened that door which some people call asking for help, but I still maintain it's telling my story. Because asking for help sounds like, you know, there's so much stigma around asking for help and and it's, it's just so loaded because you have to admit you have a problem in order to ask for help. And so that door for me is just telling my story, speaking my truth. That continues to be the way that I live my life. And every time you share your story, you help. <laughs> Many people, not just one. <laughs> Last week, I actually celebrated 18 years of sobriety. Yeah. 18, I was going to say 17. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Tell us about that first year of, of getting clean. I mean, how did you do it and how hard was it and how long did it take? The first year was just about, like, not using. When I subscribed to a certain modality of recovery, which was a 12-step fellowship, 12-step program, I invested. <laughs> My perfectionism was like, right, if we're going to do it, we're going to do everything that they say and do all those air quote suggestions, which are not actually suggestions at all. Well, you, you did all the drugs and now you're the, doing you all know, the steps. Exactly, overachiever much. But it was it was not easy because it re required a complete overall of my life, my lifestyle, and a huge loss. I mourned the loss of this drug, um, you know, that's because I had to start feeling again, and it was difficult. Yeah. I struggled with having that, like, deluge of feelings just, like, resurfacing. And in the beginning, I only had two feelings. It was good and bad. You know, I feel good. I feel bad. And then they started getting like all com complex and complicated and overwhelming. And I was like, what the hell am I supposed to do with all of this? Because my go-to was to use. To numb Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whether I was celebrating. So what, what did you do with the ball? I used that sponsor-sponsor relationship. So I had an amazing sponsor. You know, after about nine nine months of, of sobriety, it started becoming clear that I wasn't just struggling with the return of feelings. Like, I had mental health issues that had been masked by my using. I got the support I needed in terms of, like, seeking seeking help for that. 
which was also a relief because uh, suddenly there was like an explanation <laughs> for things that I'd experienced even in adolescence for like these extreme emotions and like uh, the the way that I felt and the intensity that I felt things and I was like oh it's it's like a thing <laughs> it's not just like it's got, got a name, name. it's yeah. not just me going mad and me feeling like this this alien in, inhabiting this human body I got the advice that if you if your car's broken go to a mechanic if you have legal issues go to a lawyer if you know if there's something wrong with your brain go to psychiatrists. So I did and and I got myself into therapy as well. I started to learn as well about the drinking and the using being symptomatic of of all of the other things, especially the trauma that I experienced, multi- multiple occasions of trauma that I collected over the years, which I needed to deal with and still am. Um, and I'm I have no shame around saying that I am a professional patient <laughs> in terms of my, my my therapy, very dedicated, because I still think it's, you know, an ongoing process that I need need help around my mental health uh, vulnerabilities. So that, that first year, but obtaining my, my one-year chip, oh, gosh, that was... Still, still remains the best milestone that I've, I've ever experienced. Yeah. So talk to us about the writing, Desiree. When did you start finding your voice as a writer? Did you journal when you got into recovery? I, I've been journaling since I was 10 years old. So I've been keeping diaries or journal. Were you journaling when you were a heroine? I addict? was, actually. <laughs> it, it, did they just say, wow? No, <laughs> no, it was... It, <laughs> It was so, when I when I read them. Also, when I was busy writing, we don't talk about it ever. I went back to the journals and I was like, "Wow, the denial!" And when I was reading it, like from a sober perspective, I was like, "Check what the hell were you like?" I could not yeah. believe like like the denial that I. That like how intricately and creatively I had to weave this web of denial to keep my addiction mine. I've I've always loved writing. I've always been in a love affair with the English language. And in 2013 is when I attended my first writing workshop. I remember moaning to the facilitator, um, Dawn Garish, um, and I was like, I want to be a writer. I want to be a writer. And she just responded. She went, but my dear, you already are. And I was like, am I? I'm a writer. What do writers do? They write. And so I started I started blogging and writing little vignettes and short stories and did that for poetry as well. And so in 2018, I self-published a poetry book slash journal called Believe More Deeply that had my poetry but also had like writing prompts it was also uh, served as a journal it was around the same time that I was looking at the blog post that I was putting out and I was like this is a book at the time I was still doing third person and like you know like distancing myself but I was like this is my story I felt compelled to write my story because I, I wanted, to, wanted to break the cycle, this legacy that had been passed on to me without my permission, this generational trauma, this generational 
belief systems. I I did not want that for my daughters, and so I I needed to just be raw and real and authentic and write my story, my truth. And I've always maintained this is mine. <laughs> you can disagree with it. You could have been there and had a different experience, but I need to write my my truth because I do not want to pass this on to to my daughters. I don't want them to need to subscribe. And that book was we don't we talk, we about, don't talk ever. about it. Yeah. Has your daughter read it? She has read part some of it. She has a copy. I gave her a copy this year because she's been hounding me. Well, I'm, I'm sure it's the way you're going to break the generational trauma about, by being so open yeah, and telling yeah. your story. And it's a beautiful thing to do and a very brave thing yeah. to do as well. So, so well done. Thank you. you. Imagine someone's listening to this, Desiree, and they're, you know, back where, where you were years ago. And I thought it was so interesting how you've, you'd been to meetings, obviously, but you still had no idea how to make the changes. And that's the thing about meetings. You know, I mean, I know AA and NA have saved millions mm. of lives, but, you know, I'm not sure they teach people how to mm. stop using and it wasn't really until you got to the rehab, was it, that um, you started learning some, some tools and techniques. And I wanted to ask you if someone's listening to this that is really, you know, in, in that, that bad way, how can they get started? What should they do? So there's the abstinence part of it. And I think that's where, you know, re rehab rehabs, in my opinion, serve two purposes in uh, supporting abstinence but also in chipping away at denial you know that's that's the purpose of any good rehabilitation center especially primary care not everybody is privileged enough to to have access to that and even outside of that we have so so such limited resources in this country for people seeking help i've seen people change at the risk of repeating myself, I've seen people change just by telling their story. And it sounds so simplistic, you know, but to be able to share what has been keeping you trapped in shame or in guilt and to truly be seen and heard and not judged is so powerful. Even in the way that I work with my clients, I have no expectation that they even rock up sober. You know, it's like, come as you are. We can't discount that that's, part, that's the part of the story. If someone is listening, find someone. And does not have to be an admission. It does not have to be a confession. It does not have to be an acknowledgement even. It's just find someone that will listen and just speak your truth. As you said yeah. earlier, it's been my experience and I've seen it with other people who have opened that door because it is like opening a door and you will be hella surprised what's on the other side and who's on the other side. Yeah. Who is, yeah. Because we believe, especially in addiction and eating disorders and self-harm and all the self-defeating behavior, we believe no one knows. You know, it's our thing. It's our secret. But like <laughs> everyone knows. <laughs> and we're just, we're just waiting for you to open that door. And, and that's the door is, is truth. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, 
Just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. So how can people find more about you, Desiree? What's, uh, what if someone wanted to come to your practice and tell you their truth? Are you available? Can they make an appointment, for Absolutely. example? Absolutely. Um, so I um, have a website. It's just my name, www.desireannmartin.com. On Instagram as believe.more.deeply. So there's lots of ways right. to find me. Right. So the best way to buy your book is, uh, on, I think I got it on my Kindle. Yeah, Amazon, on Amazon, it's, there's Kindle and paperback. Mm-hmm. Um, in South Africa, it's still on, it's on loot and on Take Lot. For anyone that's listening or who is struggling with any issue, or be it mental health or trauma or addiction, or is, is watching someone go through that, and I always need to reiterate that there is, that there is hope always. My story is not unique, but if if I could if I could come from there to where I am now with with the life that I have, that I am not willing to gamble for, you know, a cocktail at sunset or or a line of anything. I've got way too much to lose at the moment. But just like there is yeah, hope yeah. always for anyone. Thank you so much, Desiree. That's quite a story. Let's pull out some key points. Desiree's addiction began with slimming pills. She could buy them over the counter here in South Africa. They contained amphetamines. She was on about 10 a day, losing weight and full of energy. When she moved to the UK, she was horrified to discover that she would actually need a doctor's script to get these pills. Always on the lookout for something to give her a buzz, Desiree turned to alcohol. So she was drinking and comfort eating to keep her warm during the UK's harsh winter. The result of that was that she regained the weight she'd lost, which made her depressed. When her UK visa expired, she returned to South Africa and she was delighted to discover that everyone she knew was now getting high at the weekends. The rave culture had exploded and drug-taking was normalised. It was the perfect subculture for Desiree to slot into with her ever-growing addictions. She was taking MDMA, crystal meths, LSD and ecstasy. But just like drinkers, she had her rules, and she vowed that she would never take crack cocaine or heroin. But just like drinkers, she broke that rule. She fell in love with a heroin addict. When he told her about his addiction, she was unfazed. She could cope. After all, she'd seen the movie Trainspotting, so she knew how it worked. This was not an easy relationship, but she stuck by him because her parents' marriage had showed her that you stick together no matter what. However, the no matter what that Desiree was dealing with led her to trying heroin herself. She vomited after that first hit, but she persevered. It was like a warm blanket that blanked out all of her emotions. It takes years, sometimes decades, for people to become dependent on alcohol, but hard drugs like heroin are a different matter. Desiree was hooked within a matter of weeks until eventually she needed it just to feel normal. Her daily struggle became keeping the withdrawal at bay. A friend dragged her into AA 
and she did attend meetings now and again, but she was usually high and she would lie about her clean time just because she wanted the praise. Her rehab journey began when her dad drove her out to the middle of nowhere to a rehab. Desiree describes that rehab as a concrete tank for people to withdraw from whatever they happen to be taking. No support or rehabilitation included, just a few goats hanging round. She managed to get expelled from that one for fraternising. Then she went to live with her mom, who did everything she could to control her, including locking her in the house. But all that interested Desiree was escaping so she could get her hands on some heroin. Eventually, she ran out of resources to fund her drug habit, so had to resort to sex work, which of course led to a lot of shame, which of course led to more drugs to cope with the shame. A terrible spiral to be trapped in. Her long-suffering mother eventually found another rehab, and finally things began to change. By this time, Desiree was so tired from the secrets and the shame. She felt they were rotting her from the inside. And she began to tell her story. She began speaking her truth. She made the choice to get clean. She chose life. And she told her story over and over. This rehab worked because they taught her to speak her truth, which set her free. Once Desiree had decided to use the 12 steps, she was all in. We see that at Tribe Sober. The people who go all in, the ones who throw the book at it, are the ones that succeed. Desiree's first year of recovery was mainly about not using. It meant, of course, a complete overhaul of her lifestyle. She felt a great sense of loss. She mourned the loss of heroin and had to learn to deal with her feelings again. At the beginning, those feelings were either good or they were bad. But gradually they became more complex, which was difficult for her as she could no longer take some heroin to numb them all out. And she also discovered that she had mental health issues, which had been masked by her drug taking. So she began therapy. She learned that the drinking and the using had been symptomatic of the multiple traumas she dealt with over the years. Many people in our community love the work of Gabor Mate, which emphasises the link between trauma and developing an addiction. Desiree has finally shed the shame, is now 18 years sober, and spends her time helping and inspiring others. At the age of 41, she published her memoir. We don't want to talk about it, ever. And her story continues to give people hope to show them that there is a way out. If you want to learn more about Desiree or book a counselling session with her, you can go to her website, which is desireannmartin.com and her book is available on Amazon. I'll put it in the show notes. So let me end with a message from one of our chat rooms from member Mandy. We've heard from Desiree about how important it is to tell our stories and ditch the shame, and that's exactly what Mandy has done. So she says, Hi everyone, huge congratulations on all the amazing milestones. I've reached the four-month milestone today. Thank you for believing in me when I didn't believe in myself, for holding my hand and teaching me to be kind to myself. For those struggling, please take it one day at a time. 
Use all the tools that this beautiful tribe offers. Sue's Zoom chats and the Saturday Zoom cafes are a great source of strength and inspiration. Let go of the guilt and the shame. This is a hard but also beautiful and rewarding journey. Oh, thank you, Mandy. Well, we're all so proud of you and it's been wonderful to see you thriving in your alcohol-free life. If you're tempted to begin this life-changing journey to an alcohol-free life, then your first step should be to join our five-day sober sprint. It takes place from the 17th to the 21st of October and it's absolutely free. It's a sobriety boot camp where you'll learn a lot and connect with others on the same path. To join, you can go to tribesober.com and hit Sober Sprint or just find the Sober Sprinters Facebook group and ask to join. I'll see you in there. That's it from me, guys. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.